if you've got your Bible handy, let's read from Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, We're going to read from verse 19. I think the words will be on the screen for us. Hebrews 10, verse 19. And the title in my Bible, although not divinely inspired, says, A Call to Persevere in Faith. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Amen. What fantastic verses that we've read from Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to just let you know how I want to break down the passage today, and I think there should be some slides coming up that will just illustrate this. So yeah, verses 19 to 21, we're just going to set the scene of the verses that are going to come next, and we're going to jump back into Andy's sermon for a few moments from last week to just kind of set that scene and the context. And then we want to notice three really important exaltations from this passage that we have read. Three exaltations. That means emphatically urging somebody to do something. Three times from what we have read, the writer, whoever it was, is gonna urge us, take action and do something. And you'll see these three. Number one is draw near to God. And the second one you'll see coming up on the screen, hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. And the final one is let us consider one another how we might spur each other on towards love and good works. And and they're easy to spot because all three of them start with let us. It's a call to action. Let's do these three things. And finally, we're going to wrap it up with one little warning. We get warnings in the book of Hebrews, though. We've seen that. But then we get a wonderful lift at the end and encouragement before uh, before we finish our passage. So then, verse 19, let's start and we'll go through, uh, not, not word by word by any means, but we'll try and give the context of the passage as best we can. So the first word you'll notice in verse 19, if you look down in your Bible, is the word therefore. Therefore. So here we're just setting the scene, right? In light of what's already been said. Now, this verse is a bit of a tipping point, a bit of a hinge in the entire book of Hebrews. It's kind of taken us from more of the doctrinal stuff and it's moving us now into a bit more practical stuff. So really, it's, it's in light of everything that's being said, but especially in light of what Andy was preaching on last week. And verse 10 kind of summarizes that, that we have been made holy through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ once for all. In light of that, therefore, this is wonderful, We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. That's incredible. The most holy place. What is that and where is that? 
Well, I think we've said already, haven't we, as we've been going through Hebrews, now it is not a physical place, but a spiritual thing, the most holy place. It's God's presence. And we have confidence, the Bible says, to enter God's presence essentially through prayer. That is typically how we do that, right? We come to God in prayer. We, we enter into the most holy place through the Lord Jesus in prayer, and we have confidence to do that. And I just want to highlight three things really quickly before we move on about this access that we have into the most holy place. And we're going to contrast it to what Andy was speaking about last week. You know, the priests as they would come and do, do their work. It's different to that. So our access into the most holy place, number one, it's absolute. So it's any time, any place, anywhere, access to the most holy place. Incredible. Secondly, it's really intimate. God is now not abstract or distant or, or accessed through a priest on earth, but he's Father who welcomes us with open arms and with love into a special relationship. It's absolute and it's intimate and also it's guaranteed because we come into that most holy place through the blood of Jesus. We have been bought by the sacrifice of Jesus and therefore we come to, to God as our Father. Now these thoughts are then expanded upon that we, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus through a new and living way. A new and living way. Well, it's a new way, partly because there was an old way. There was a way that people used to go into the most holy place. We've been through it many times through the book, through the priests going in with sacrifices and offerings. So there's a new way, and it's a living way. And everything to do with Jesus and the gospel, the good news that we find in the Bible, it's life-oriented. Jesus is the one who gives life. It's a new way and a living way. And I've just written down some examples as I was reading this. Jesus says, I am he who lives, and I'm alive forevermore. He's the living bread. We, if we're Christians, we are living stones building up the church. We have living hope within us. See, life runs through Christianity. If you've trusted in Jesus... You've got life, and the idea is that we live it to the fullest. Isn't that a challenge? We have a new and living way to approach God. The Bible even says of Jesus, Christ, who is our life. It's the living way. He is our life. He makes us alive, born again by the Spirit of God. And we have confidence, therefore, to enter that most holy place. And it says that this access has been opened for us through the curtain that is his body, through the veil. It was a while ago, but Joel preached to us. I don't know where Joel's gone. Oh, there he is. Joel preached to us about, about the veil, the curtain in the temple, and how, how big it was, and how thick it was, and how heavy it was. And I'm sorry, Joel, I've forgotten all the dimensions and the weights and the size, but it was big. And it was a prohibition. It was like, no, you're not coming in here because this is holiness. And you are sinful, and you can't come except through that priest annually. And, and we noted in our home group this week, it's just like so repetitive. You know, the priest all the time with sacrifices. The same sacrifices, repeatedly offering them for sin. Year after, what a monotonous thing for these priests to come and, and do that work. But in Jesus, the curtain has been torn in two. And we get that in, in Matthew 27, when the Lord Jesus died, there were some strange things that happened. And, and you might know them. 
There was darkness in the middle of the day in Jerusalem. There was an earthquake. That was pretty weird. There were dead saints that were raised back to life. That was pretty strange. And about a mile and a half down the road from where Jesus died at Calvary, the veil in the temple, the curtain, was torn in two from top to bottom. And we might wonder, well, what's the significance? Well, the significance is this, that the barrier is broken down and God signifies to us that Jesus has made it possible for us to be made right with God through what he did on the cross. And therefore, the barrier is removed and the writer here says we have confidence to enter the most holy place. I wonder if there's anyone here today who's not a Christian. I want to tell you today, there's no barrier with God. There's nothing stopping you coming to God except you. And you can come in your sin and your brokenness and your difficulties and your problems and your past, whatever it may be, and wherever you're from and whatever you've done, you can come to Jesus because sins have been paid for on the cross by Jesus. He bore our sins in his own body on the cross and he rose in newness of life and he offers to everyone who trusts him salvation. The way has been made opened. There's nothing to hinder us coming to God today. And if, it's, if you've never done it, we want to urge you from the scriptures, come to Jesus. Ask him simply to save you. Or if you're a Christian and maybe you're wanted, come to him and say, Lord, I need you. Make yourself come to that most holy place. There is a welcome. There is a welcome from a loving God. Aren't they great verses? So that's the context. That's kind of setting up what, what the writer has in, in his mind. Now we have the three exaltations, the three strong call to action. And the first one is, let us draw near to God. It's verse 22 in your Bible. Let's draw near to God. Wow. Wow. The author now tells us how we do this. There's a bit more detail kind of written around it. And there are three, maybe four, depending on how you read the text. I'm going to go three just for ease to keep it on the screen nicely. Three, three ways in which we draw near to God. And by the way, keep in mind all the time this lovely verse, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Isn't that lovely? So firstly, we come, we draw near with a sincere heart, with sincerity. When we draw near to God and when we pray, it should be warm and genuine and real. It should be sincere. I, I want to urge those of us in the room who are Christians, when you pray, let's be open and real with God. Let's talk to him and tell him our fears, our hopes, our dreams, our ambitions. He cares. Stuart was telling us as he opened today, the details of our life are mapped out by the Almighty and he wants us to speak to him openly. When I read this, I thought I've spent too many years using big fancy words in my prayers and not really opening up to God in, in a real way. And I regret that. And I want to urge particularly our young people, when you draw near to God in prayer, you don't need the fancy words and it doesn't need to be 10 minutes long. The simple, sincere thoughts from your heart, God wants to hear. 
So we need to draw near with a sincere heart and keep this in mind. Proverbs tells us the Lord weighs the heart. And Samuel tells us that the Lord looks on the heart. And Jeremiah tells us that the Lord searches the heart. There's nothing that you can hide from him anyway. We may as well come and be real with God. He is loving and gracious and long-suffering and kind. He loves us. So we come to God. Firstly, we draw near with a sincere heart. The second thing we notice is that we, we are to draw near to God with the full assurance that faith brings. And I love this. Not just with, with a bit of assurance. The full assurance that faith brings. Now there are echoes of Hebrews chapter 4.16 here. I don't know if that's going to come up on the screen. Yes, fantastic. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. And when we do, we can find uh, mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. We approach God with the full assurance that faith brings. And it is faith that enables us to grasp hold of these truths. It's faith that enables us to, to accept that we are in Jesus, accepted by God. Ephesians 1, accepted in the beloved one. We're accepted in Jesus. So we can have full assurance to come to God in prayer. Faith enables us to rest in Jesus, who he is and what he has done. A perfect saviour, offering a perfect sacrifice to God. The perfect solution for sinners. We have a great saviour in the Lord Jesus. And so because of who he is and what he's, gone, and what he's done, remember from last week, God declares we are holy because of Jesus. So we can approach him with the full assurance that faith brings, with confidence and assurance. And thirdly, we can approach God having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Now I'm sure there's some imagery here to the priests of old, you know, the washing and, and, the, and the, the, the labor, or the washing, the ceremonial stuff. But, but notice this, that, that it's our hearts are sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. We're going to come back to that because that's incredible. And our bodies washed with pure water, inside and out, completely, totally cleansed and washed and made clean and made pure by Jesus. Now, it's important here when it speaks about having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. This is where the devil likes to get a hook into many Christians. And I talk from experience, and I'm sure if you've been a Christian long enough, you will know it too. But he is called in the Bible the accuser, isn't he? The accuser of the brethren. And the hook that he wants to put into Christians is, <sighs> Matt Smith, remember in 1999 when you did that thing? You can't stand at the front at Regent and preach. You can't lead the worship. You can't be a church pastor. You can't be involved in, some... hey, there's guilt for what you've done. And the devil tries to bring these things into our, into our thoughts and when he tries to get those hooks in to accuse us and put us down, when we feel the guilt and the unworthiness, we need to counter the lies with Bible truth. We're going to see some verses from Romans any second now. For Christians, there's no condemnation. And the Apostle Paul says, who will lay any charge to God's elect ones? 
Nobody can. Christians should be free. Christians are free from shame and from guilt. No matter what you have done in the past. Isn't that incredible? When we come to God, our hearts have been sprinkled and washed and made clean. The guilty conscience with the Christian does not exist. There's no condemnation for us. We are washed in Jesus' blood. If you're living with shame and guilt today, probably some will be, know this, that your past sins don't define you. And your history doesn't dictate your now. And God has given you a future and a hope. Christians, we should be living free from guilt and from shame because Jesus paid for it in full. It's a wonderful truth. We can come to God cleansed and forgiven, not in fear, because God's perfect love casts out all fear. I'm just going to read from Philippians 3. I think it'll pop up on the screen. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. And I, I love these words, right, because they give me encouragement. He says, one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Essentially, Paul is saying here, what's been and gone is in the past. I'm not going to be distracted by it. I'm not going to be weighed down by it. I'm not going to let it spoil my present experience. Instead, I'm going to press on, says Paul. I'm looking for the upward call of Jesus. I've got bigger things in my life now than my past. My sins and my guilt and my shame are done, and I'm now living for God. And that's a great truth for us as Christians. That it's finished and it's done. And so we can draw near to God with a sincere heart. And we can draw near to God with the full assurance that faith brings. And we can come with freedom from guilt and with shame. And if you are a Christian today, you have every right, God-given right, to come to the throne of grace, to come to the most holy place, because you're his child, you're his treasured possession, you're precious in his sight. So the first emphatic emphasis that we get here is, let us draw near to God. Let us draw near to God. Now the second one, it's verse 23. Let us, again, we've got that, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. We mentioned faith a few moments ago, didn't we? The full assurance that faith brings. And through that faith, we have hope. We've got hope of more than this world, I hope. And we've got hope of greater things still to come. We've got the ultimate hope of one day when eyes close here on earth and the body goes to the ground eyes open in heaven with Jesus. The best is always yet to come for the Christian. We've got living, real hope. And it's not like I've got my lottery ticket. I, I hope, that's the logo, isn't it, for the lottery? I hope I win the lottery. Nah, this is dead cert. This is like, not bet your mortgage on it, not bet your life on it. Rest your soul on it. It's certain hope. Isn't that incredible? Certain hope. The book of Hebrews tells us about better hope. Better hope. We have in Jesus better hope. And so the writer here says to these Christians who are under attack, he's encouraging them to keep going. He says, draw near to God. And then he says, hold 
unswervingly to the hope that you profess. Maybe today you are racked with fears or doubts. And you've got problems and challenges and maybe you feel like you can't manage. Many Christians have been there and of all of us will be there again at some point. And the writer says, hold on swervingly. And the world and the flesh and the devil, they're going to try and undermine your hope. Don't relent, the writer says. Hold unswervingly. And maybe you've got family or friends who are not Christians. And they want you to believe the lies of the devil. Your hope's not real. And they actively discourage you from holding on to your hope. The Bible says hold unswervingly. It means don't take any detours. Don't go off to the left or the right, but cling on to it steadfastly. Like a soldier with feet in the ground ready to stand, hold on to your hope in Jesus. Don't listen to the lies of the devil. Make no provision for the flesh. Trust in the Lord. Have relentless determination. I think our friend Morley might be watching online today. Hello if you are, Louise. I hope you're feeling a bit better. Louise tells us in home group all the time, be intentional about this or that or the other. Doesn't she? Everyone in our home group. Yeah, she does. And it's great advice. Louise, this is for you. Because this is mega intentional on behalf of all Christians. It's something we have to do sometimes. It doesn't just happen. We have to intentionally choose to cling to our Savior and cling to the Word of God and believe it even when it doesn't feel like we can believe it. And you might say, well, Matt, they're nice words, right? Hold on to your hope. Great. But you've, you've no idea what, what I'm living through. You've no idea my heartache, my pain, my circumstances. You don't know how I live. You don't never walk a day in my shoes. You've got no idea what it's like for me when I leave this place. And that is true. For some here, I have no idea about the challenges of your life. And the depression and the heartache and the loneliness and the sorrow and all those things that everybody has from time to time, all those problems. And you say, I need more than just hold on to the hope that you profess. I'm going to jump back into, into chapter 6 of Hebrews. The Bible gives us the basis upon which all Christian hope rests. For he who promised is faithful. Your hope is in the God who cannot lie. And your hope is in the God who makes promises that cannot be broken. And your hope is in a saviour who cannot fail. Now, in, in Hebrews 6, I'm going to read the verses because they're important for what I'd like to say. This is God talking to Abraham, or this is about God when he was with Abraham. It says, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, God swore by himself saying, I'll surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, 
we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly comforted. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where a foreigner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, quite a lengthy reading to stick in halfway through. Let me tell you where my mind is with this. God swore by himself to Abraham. It says there was no one greater, so God swore by himself. And then he swore by an oath. Two things to prove to Abraham that he could have hope. And by the way, what Abraham had been promised was against all human hope and all human logic. Like a double lock to give him hope. And the passage says like an anchor for the soul. Hebrews 6 is telling us that in life we will have problems and we will have storms. Storms can be violent and painful and scary and difficult to maneuver. Life can leave us bruised and battered and and hurting and in pain and feeling so low. And there will be times in life when we go, God, why has this thing happened to me? Sometimes it's worse, isn't it? Why have you let my wife go through that? Or why has my father gone through that? Or why have my children had to go through that? Lord, why would you do this? If you're real, how could these things ever take place? I think we've all been there, if we're honest, sometimes, haven't we? When we're in pain and we're about to go under. But Hebrews 6 is teaching us there is a hope. There is an anchor for the soul which is firm and secure and it can't move and it's grounded in the holy place it can't dislodge and it can't fail and hebrews 6 exhorts christians flee there for refuge from the storm to the immovable anchor that is jesus and underpinning all of this is his promise god is faithful as he promised and so why we're going back to Hebrews 6. It's got nothing to do with me or you, surely. It was for Abraham. But but look what it says in in verse uh, 17. God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear. Who to? To Abraham? No. To the heirs of what was promised. To the heirs of what was promised. God did that for the benefit of those who would follow on. That's us. And then the next verse in that passage. God did this so that by two two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for him to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. And we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. See, God made those promises to Abraham in that way. And he swore the oath and he swore by himself for my benefit and for yours. That thousands of years later, struggling little me, clinging on by my fingertips in my faith, just desperate for hope. Hebrew says there's an anchor for the soul that never moves. And it's Jesus. And it's in him. And it's in the holy place. And it's yours and mine. This is why we can confidently say that as Christians, we can hold on unswervingly to our hope. Well, the third and the final uh, exaltation that we have here 
verse 24. Let us draw near to God and let us hold unswervingly to our hope. And now, finally, very, very, very practical and lovely verses here. Let us consider how we may spur each other on towards love and good works. These are great verses. I'm really glad that Christianity is not a solo project. Now, those of you that know me know I'm a bit of a grumpy old man, and I do like my own time and my own space, and I like running on my own, and I like cycling on my own, and I like driving the car on my own. That's no offense, Deborah and Grace. I love you guys as well. I like my own space and my own time. Not naturally an extrovert. I'm so glad, though, that Christianity is not a solo thing. I'm certain, and this is no false modesty, and I'm sure you would all agree, I would have given up years ago. Imagine being the only Christian on earth. No one to encourage you, no church. Is it real? I'd be long gone, I'm telling you. I know it for sure. But we are called as Christians to be the church, to be united in one body with Jesus as our living head, living stones. And God wants us to bring all of ourselves to the church, our personalities and our gifts and our talents and our quirks and our uniqueness and our personalities as well, everything. We have in this room alone a spectacular support network. We have a Christian family. We are brothers and sisters. Now the writer says here, let's consider. Here we go again, Morley. This is very intentional. Let's think about. Let's consider each other. Let's contemplate it. Let's really put some thought into it. Let's reflect on it. Maybe even when you go home today, no evening service, maybe even get a pen and paper and write a list. I've done it this week of how we might consider how we might spur each other on and uh, towards love and good deeds. Think about how we might do that in our church. Now this comes with responsibility, of course. Here's a question. Do I make it easy for you to love me? Please don't answer out loud or throw anything. <laughs> do I make it possible for you to love me? And do you make it possible for your brothers and sisters to love you? And we all know the people, right? There are people in life who just, they suck the life out of you, don't they? And you see them coming and you're like, oh, just... <laughs> Thomas, come and get your shoes. And, uh, and there are people who are disagreeable about everything. And they're abrasive and they just wear you down and they, they can't find common ground on anything. And they're negative and they're moaning about everything. Oh, my goodness can't compromise when we come together like this as a church there, there, there is always every single time without exception there are people in the room who are hurting and who are lonely and who are sad and who are mourning and who are poorly and who are struggling every time and that's true right now as well and isn't it sad when you come to church and, and you need the embrace of Christians and you need the nourishment of other believers and you just get the flippant, sarcastic comment and you get the filthy look or the critical commentary about something that you've done. 
It's the worst, isn't it? It's toxic, and it goes against what the Bible is, is teaching here. We should be considering how we spur each other on towards love and good works. And, and the best way to do that is to model the behavior that we want to see in church, isn't it? To love like Jesus loved. He said by this, all men will know you're my disciples if you have love for each other. I think we do a good job at that at Regent, by the way. I'm not trying to be critical. I want to encourage us to, to do it all the more because it's so important. Every one of us here has the responsibility if we're a, a member of the church, if we're Christians. You are an architect of the culture of this church just by definition of you being here. People look to you. People see what you're doing. They hear what you say. We need to model Jesus to each other, which is hard, right? I'm not saying I do it. It's hard, but we should aspire to do these things, to think how we might spur each other on towards love and to good works, to love unconditionally like Jesus, to encourage each other to good works. I'm conscious of time. I'm not going to be long. So let's be super, super, super practical. Next time your children come out of Sunday school and they're buzzing and they're energetic, go and find Louise Brown. Tell her. It will encourage her in that ministry of good work. Or find the Sunday school teacher that taught them the memory verse and tell them. Or next time Fiona reads a poem and it touches your heart, go and tell her. And next time Rob leads communion and you see Jesus in a new light, go and tell him. And, and there's a million different things that go on every week that probably I'm not even aware of. The people who do them and it encourages you, tell them. It will encourage them to keep on going. And when Stuart leads the worship and, and when Daniel leads the worship and all, all the other people who do it and Rachel, tell them. Or when Bentley leads the, the workplace ministry and it just gives you the, the support you need that week, tell them. We all need encouragement. And not just our youngsters, I think our youngsters need special encouragement and it, it's great to have young people in our church. Keep going, young people. Even just being here is amazing. You're doing great. And we love you and we want you to keep going. It's brilliant. But not just our young need encouragement. Our elders do and our ministry leaders do and our home group leaders do and our church staff do and we all do. Let's not just make the mistake if it's just for the, for the kids and just for the babes in Christ. We need this together, don't we? And the writer is, is exhorting us to consider each other in love and in good works. Isn't it fantastic? And as we close, we get this challenge. In verse 25, I think it is. Let me just turn to my verses. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Verse 25, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other. I'm going to spend a few seconds here. I want to lovingly and graciously and kindly remind us that we should be meeting together. Now, we're here today, right? So there's a tick in the box. But there's loads of things. There's home groups and prayer meetings and all different ministries you could be involved in. And when we come to church, we don't just come to get, do we? Although we do get a lot. 
but we come to give of ourselves as well. And if I'm not coming to things, then how can I bless you? And if you're not coming to things, how can you bless your brothers and sisters? We need to be living life together in a real way, like they were in Acts. Maybe we live a bit further away now with globalization and all that, but just to do life together. Cups of tea, little walk, quick word of prayer, little text message, popping in to check on each other. That's what we need as a church. But we need to be meeting together in order to do that. And finally, what a great word of encouragement. It says, and all the more as you see the day approaching. I'm going to quote Joel to finish. When Joel preached at the baptism a few weeks ago, Joel said to our young people, and it resonated with me, I think, probably more than them, go all in for God. You can't say fairer than that, Joel. There you go, Matthew. If you want to learn from Joel this year, there's something great to learn from Joel. Go all in from God. Your devotion, your heart, your talents, your time, your money, your gifts, put it for use to God. It will build the church. It will encourage the church. It will do great things in God's hand. And it says, and all the more as we see the day approaching. Now, whatever you think the day might be, there's a few different variations on it. Jesus is coming again. The day is coming. Life is short. And what are we building in life? The Bible speaks of wood and hay and stubble, worthless things that will leave no value. But there's spiritual work to do. Go all in for God. Give yourself to God. It will build up into beautiful things in the hand of God that will last forever. So here are these Christians, and they're under pressure. And the writer gives them these great encouragements. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. And let us consider each other how we may encourage one another towards love and good works. And here's the final little bit. All the more. Because the day is coming. Jesus is coming again. We want the church to be built up. If you're not a Christian today, we want you in the church. God wants you in the church. Jesus died for your sins. Come to him in faith and turn from your sins. He'll save you. We're going to sing now. I think Stuart and the band are going to, to lead us. I think Hebrews 10 was in the mind of whoever wrote this lovely song. Boldly I approach your throne. Blameless now. I'm running home. By your blood I come, welcomed as your own, into the arms of majesty. This is the art of celebration, knowing we are free from condemnation. Oh, praise the one who made an end to all my sin. Now you